I'm Scott Greer, and I'm here to talk to you about bureaucracy. Nah, start over. I'm Scott Greer, and I'm here to talk to you about power, influence, the way decisions really get made, how your lives are structured by people you've never heard of using skillfully designed legal tools that will change everything about your careers and your life, from what you can do with the buildings that you're attempting to design through to how you're paid. It's the world of regulation and bureaucracy, and it really matters. How about that? I hope that was better. Because one of the key problems with talking about bureaucracy is that while it is the structuring fact of modern life, it's a thing nobody likes. Very few people say, I want to be a bureaucrat. But you look at a healthcare system, it's a bureaucracy. You look at a government, it's a bureaucracy. You look at an army, it's a bureaucracy with guns. You look at the police, it's a smaller bureaucracy with guns. Bureaucracies, formal organizations, are the dominant fact of life in the United States, and that's the healthcare system as well as everything else. They vary in their size, their cultures, their organization, their legal structures, but they are what we live in. And I hope it makes people feel better to insist that they have an unbureaucratic organization because there really is no such thing. University of Michigan, with tens of thousands of students, tens of thousands of employees, simply could not function without bureaucracy even if I am as likely to complain about bureaucratic silliness as anyone else. So the bureaucracy we're going to talk about today is public bureaucracies, which range from the three million odd civilian employees of the federal government, through the many employees of the states, through the employees and decisions of the 90,000 odd local governments that we have in the country. In general, especially at the state and federal levels, the people running these bureaucracies break down into two categories, appointed and civil service. Civil servants have to be nonpartisan. Actually, they all have to be nonpartisan. We'll get back to the Hatch Act in a second. But civil servants genuinely do tend to be nonpartisan. They're thoroughly vetted. The hiring process is famously slow. So if you want a federal job, start applying early. And they do most of what the government does all day. Everything from fish and wildlife officers to border guards to grants evaluators at the National Science Foundation. And they're protected. They're protected because the temptation in politics is always to hire your friends. A, because your friends agree with you. And B, because that's a good way to reward somebody for their support. So clientelism or patronage or I know a guy are a constant temptation for every government. It's very tempting to fill up services with your friends and your donors, and it tends to mean that you don't have a continuous functioning state. So the result is that we have civil service legislation whose objective is to make sure that there is an apparatus of state that any government can drive, that Obama can hand over the keys to the White House and Trump inherits a government. And then Trump hands over the keys to the White House, and Biden inherits a government. And these transitions, to the extent that they have worked well through the unusual years of the Trump administration, is precisely because there's all these civil servants who keep on doing their jobs without that much attention from the political level. The other side is the political level. These are appointees. Some of them are Senate-confirmed, some of them aren't. These people are there to make sure that while the state thanks to its civil servants, is there to be driven, they're the ones who actually drive it, because you can't run the whole federal government out of the White House. You need to have people who understand 
payment systems and can be appointed into CMS. You need to have people who understand public health and can be appointed into FDA and CDC. And then there's endless parts of the government that you very rarely think of and have very rarely heard of. The postal governors are in the news. You have to appoint the members of the board that, among other things, decides whether or not the postmaster general can stay in office. So these are the appointed positions. There's a lot of them, thousands, partly simply as the size of the federal government. The, some of them are liable for Senate confirmation. So, for example, the cabinet secretaries are all Senate confirmed, but the director of CDC, oddly enough, isn't. CDC might be the most important agency that doesn't have a Senate confirmed appointee. This means that the Senate, if you have an opposition-held Senate, is capable of blockading appointments should it happen. And pretty much every single administration, there's a couple of prominent appointees who are put forth by the administration and sunk in the Senate, partly because the opposition party just wants to do some damage, and partly because it's a nice opportunity for members of the president's party to show a little bit of autonomy. So this happened to Nero Tandem, for example, Biden's nominee to run the Office of Management and Budget, which is a big institutional tool for controlling what the executive branch does. The United States has an unusually large number of these political appointees. Um, we also, and this is in theory, creates a lot of responsiveness. It also creates this absolute head scrambling matrix where you're appointing people because they work in a given sector, because they have expertise, because they represent a given population, and that that's fractal, right? So. The number of ethnic groups, religious groups, localities, and so forth. It's not something conceptually simple like a couple of categories of people. It's extraordinarily complex, and you have to balance that in the appointees. Once they get into office, appointed, Senate confirmed, whatever, what do they do? Where do they steer the federal government? And how do they do it? Well, First of all, there's allocation of money, which is often spelled out in authorizing federal legislation. The NSF can do this, the NIH can do that. The Defense Department can buy this, FEMA can buy that. There's also regulations. And the when we say regulations, what we mean is a specific kind of document that the federal government produces, which has the force of law, and whose content and scope is spelled out in legislation. There is, by the way, currently a fight. It goes by the name non-delegation doctrine or even Chevron deference just to you know, justify law schools about the extent to which these, this system is appropriate. So conservatives have kind of gone after it using the argument that what I'm about to describe is an unjustifiable transfer of legislative power from the legislature to the executive. This argument seems to have some traction within both the Republican Party and the Supreme Court. If non-delegation becomes a big thing, a lot of what I'm going to say is going to cease to function, and so will a lot of what the federal government actually does. So it's potentially very, very politically serious, because the federal government since the 30s has relied on a process in which legislation delegates expert decisions to agencies, and then agencies use a process governed by the Administrative Procedures Act to decide what to do. So, for example, Clean Air and Clean Water Acts delegate to the EPA the decision as to what chemicals should be regulated and how much of them is appropriate, how much PFAS can be in the water or how much mercury can be in the air. The EPA is then instructed to use science and the rulemaking process in order to set the standards, for example, for the amount of mercury that you can have in the air or the amount of lead that you can have in the water. 
Now, in order to maintain some visibility and control, there's a regulatory process in which an agency first announces that they intend to write a rule, then they write a draft rule, then they put it out for comment in the Federal Register. Anybody can comment. They're obliged to take all the comments seriously. They have to respond to all of them. They'll often pay contractors to do that. And then they issue the final notice of the rule. And then there's a, it goes to the White House where something called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs has a look to see if it fits with the overall administration priorities. That was an innovation from the Reagan administration in order to centralize control so you didn't have bits of the government regulating in ways that Reagan wouldn't appreciate. And then it effectively gets the force of law because it then becomes what it means to enforce the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act or the Social Security Act's titles that govern Medicare and Medicaid and so forth. So it's a regulation, for example, that desegregated American hospitals by saying that you couldn't get Medicare or Medicaid payments when the programs were created if you had racially discriminatory admissions procedures. Now, the regulation process, this is the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA. The volume of stuff in the Federal Register is gargantuan, and you'll see that, as with any big organization, a lot of it's pretty boring, and most of it is very specialist. It's even hard to read some of these proposals. And there's some bizarre flukes. A student brought it to my attention that every time you want to import a non-standard car from Europe, there has to be a special federal regulation. So it literally says, basically, Joe Bloggs wants to bring in a Lamborghini that is not otherwise legal in the United States, and here's the regulation permitting him to do it. But most of the time, it's about policy. I ran through the stages there, notice of intent to regulate, draft regulation in the Federal Register, and then the final regulation. If an agency does this wrong, then you can challenge the regulation on the grounds that the, they didn't obey the Administrative Procedures Act and the rule is invalid. And in the construction of these rules, that's where not just people responding to the consultation, often with good information, but also a lot of the lobbying happens. Because if you're a lobbyist, quite often you know you're not really going to get the attention of the legislature, but you can persuade a friendly administration or friendly people within the administration to work on your topic. And they can often use their flexibility, their delegated flexibility, to do things that probably couldn't happen if they were trying to get it on the national political agenda. So if you get into any form of advocacy, learn to identify proposed rules, identify the rulemaking agenda, and if you get more into advocacy or lobbying, it'll probably be a key part of your job to keep an eye on precisely some section of the federal government, CMS, for example, what rules are they thinking of writing, who's in charge of writing them, what are they trying to achieve, what's the political backup for it, and so forth. There's also executive orders. Now, the key thing about an executive order is to know what they aren't. And what they aren't is a law or a policy. They are essentially a big version of inter-office memoranda in which the president says, within the scope of legislation, you can't override legislation or even regulations with an executive order. This is how I want you to interpret things. This is how I want you to think. This is the policy that I want you to achieve. Sometimes it's nice and clear. For example, the Mexico City policies are that the United States should not give money to any organization that even provides abortion counseling. And Republican presidents write executive orders saying that, and the bureaucracy obliges because the president is the boss. And then Democrats rescind it, and the bureaucracy obliges because the president is the boss. Now, we've had a tendency 
because of the dysfunction of our highly polarized and gridlocked Congress, to get less and less legislation and more and more executive action. And this means that you're seeing a lot of executive orders. And Trump, in particular, pretty much governed through executive orders in a lot of areas. Biden, who is very good at federal politics, was therefore able to substantially reverse a lot of the Trump administration in the first few weeks, which is why he had this extraordinary number of executive orders. Essentially, the Biden transition team had been tracking what Trump was doing and mapping out how to reverse it, as well as to do new things like, for example, put a lot more attention into racial disparities as an executive order, constituting task force and telling agencies that they should apply their own rulemaking and internal procedures to addressing racism. So executive orders, you can use them to make a political point. Trump often did that. But the main thing that you're doing is trying to give a steer to agencies as to what they should prioritize with the considerable discretion that they have and within the law. You can't override the law. You can't override even a properly constituted regulation, but you can send a lot of messages. And the fact that Biden was able to move so quickly with these executive orders partly reflects the increasing dominance of the executive at the expense of Congress, partly reflects Trump's particular style of governing, which was very heavy on executive orders, and partly reflects the fact that Biden is an unusually experienced president. By which I mean, the last president who came into the Oval Office after extensive federal experience was George H.W. Bush, came into office in 1988. The last Democrat with extensive Washington experience was Lyndon Johnson from the 60s. Obama had been in the Senate for a very short period of time. George W. Bush and Bill Clinton had both been governors and jumped straight from Texas and Arkansas, respectively. And of course, Donald Trump's experience had not been in federal politics and policy. So part of the effectiveness you're seeing of the Biden administration is that Biden and the people around him know a lot about how Washington works. And I want to highlight that that's unusual. Carter and Reagan, by the way, also jumped from having been governors. So... That's why it's been such a long time. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a great president. Nixon had a great deal of federal political experience, and uh, he ended up being impeached and narrowly escaping criminal prosecution. So experience doesn't make you into a better or more law-abiding person, but it does teach you a lot about how to get things done, and Nixon was very good at that. So there's your two big takeaways and a little one about executive orders and their limitations. First of all, when paying attention to government, pay attention to both the civil servants and the political appointees. The political appointees are how we make sure that there is a steering column connecting the elections to the behavior of the government. The civil service is how there is a government. You can think of it like a car. The civil service stayed on the road substantially through the ructions of the 2016 to 2020 Trump presidency but it was increasingly not steered or it was steered by some very junior political appointees talking to acting civil servants. Biden is probably going to run things significantly differently because he has so much Washington experience and has proven very good at drawing on the resources of the Democratic Party in a way that Obama didn't do particularly well and Clinton famously did very poorly. Second point is watch regulations. A lot of what the federal government does that matters most is regulations. For example, within the framework of the High Tech Act, practically everything since then on EHR has been regulations coming out of, in particular, CMS. So a lobbyist or advocate will pay a lot of attention to regulations because that's where much of the real agenda is in healthcare, in particular. 
And they will also try to manipulate that to get the bureaucracy to put forth regulatory proposals and include things in regulatory proposals that they want to achieve. So this means that you need to pay attention to the Affordable uh, to the Administrative Procedures Act in order to understand the actual shape that policies take. It's just like budgeting. You need to pay attention to the regulations in the budget because otherwise authorizing legislation is essentially just words on a page. So I hope that was fun. I hope that this walk into the corridors of power where the viability of your business and the conduct of your life are changed by smart people playing a game that you don't understand. I hope I made it sound Game of Thrones enough for you because saying that I'm going to talk about bureaucracy and regulation never seems to get people excited. So think instead it's about power and money. And that's always interesting. This has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our research, come and find us at www.governancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at HMP GovLab. <laughs>